um, lead pastor here at King of Grace. We're glad you're with us. Um, it's a good thing to be together in the Lord's presence and be before his word. He's a God who is alive and real and draws near to us. And his word is living and active. It's how we encounter him. It's how we walk with him through his word and other important means of grace that he grants us. Um, before I start, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, so you can be turning there. Uh, I just wanted to say to everybody, uh, really to the whole church, thank you. Thank you for all your work and your gifts to allow us to transform downstairs. So I don't know if you've been down there, but please go down there if you haven't and look at the difference. Um, it's really just such a blessing. So I know there's many people who worked really hard, and thank you all. Um, it's really helped us have a room, I think, that will serve us well. That was kind of the vision, right? It was a place that would be glad to be in and glad to invite our friends to, and I think it's become that already. Uh, so thank you so much. I think we need to come up with a new name. Fellowship Hall doesn't really do, do justice. So I was like, this is just my turn to think, and now this needs to be how we do it, but how about Hospitality Hall? But like, that doesn't do it. But then I thought, how about Martha Mary Hall? Martha and Mary, I think, gather together in both their lives what it looks like to have hospitality. It's, it's the doing, it's the, the meal, but it's also the friendship and, and being together. So anyhow, that's my current submission for a name. You can come up with a better one, let us know. Uh, but so grateful for all of you and, and your work for the Martha Mary Hall uh -huh. and, and the difference that that has made. Um, it's just very encouraging to watch God at work through you guys. Well, uh, we're going to be in Exodus 4, looking at this section as we continue our series in Exodus. Before we look at the text, uh, to just tell you, I think teaching is one of the hardest jobs you can do, being a teacher. I have a lot of respect for teachers. Uh, my daughter is one, as many of you know right now, teaching in Bolivia, fourth grade uh, in La Paz. Um, I used to teach. I taught chemistry a little bit, and I taught Latin to sixth graders. It was just one hour a day, and it left me exhausted. Uh, that one hour felt like four to six hours of normal work, and so that's part of why I have so much respect for teachers. I think one of the hardest things about teaching, and this connects to Exodus, so hang in there. One of the hardest things about teaching is classroom management. Um, it, it seems uh, the kids are always testing your, your leadership, um, and, and I, uh, in God's um, ironic justice. I was, a, I was a problem as a kid, and then I got to teach, and I had to learn how to deal with kids like me. Um, but there's always a testing, you know, going on um, to see if you, they can get away with stuff. And so it just goes on, even during the dynamics of a single class, and they push the limits. Where are the lines drawn? And, and if you're, in order to, to be a teacher that even survived, uh, and particularly a good teacher, you have to do classroom management well, and you have to be able to walk this line of graciousness, that you love the kids, that you're for them, that you're gracious, but not allow them to interpret that. You are somehow um, easy to manipulate. And, and so you have to be firm. And the best teachers combine those things. Uh, and and I, uh, it's, it's important in teaching. Uh, well, it relates to our passage today because this is a passage that helps us adjust our understanding of God. We can understand God in his graciousness uh, in ways that maybe we are like the kids in a classroom where we think, well, he's just a pushover, you know? He's just the gracious God, and, you know, he, he, he for, he'll forgive anything. That's his job. Um, and certainly his grace is amazing, and it is infinite, and his love is, is beyond comprehension. 
But the other side of it is he is holy. He is glorious. He is not a pushover. He sees all things. He's the perfect teacher. He knows what's going on. He knows what you're thinking. He knows all the things that you do. And he, though he's gracious, he is also holy. These things go together. And he doesn't put up with monkey business. Um, he understands what's going on. And he, he, he doesn't put up with high-handed disrespect and disobedience. We're going to see that in this passage as we see God deal with Moses and through Moses. So let's pray and pray that we be like those children learning from a good teacher that we learn who the Lord is and we learn to live under that. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this part of Scripture and the truths that it teaches us. We ask you, Lord, to, to help us understand who you are. Help me to teach well here, Lord. Um, I want to learn from this as well and be changed by it. So would you change us as we encounter you and who you are? Would you help me teach well and be glorified in it, we ask in Christ's name. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, 18 through 26 is where I'll read. It says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said, Please let me go back to my brother in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So it was in that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So Exodus chapter 4, 18 through 26. Uh, is this in and out? I can't really tell. Okay. We take care of that just so it's not a distraction. I don't know if I need to change something. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, whatever I need to do, if we need to just go to that. Um, you think it's me? It probably is me. So we're going to dig into this passage. This is a transition passage between what we've seen previously where God is encountering Moses and Moses has his objections. God calls him. He has his objections. God answers that. And then the transition to him actually going and doing the work. It's an important passage. It may just seem like a throwaway passage. Like, well, how does this fit in? But there are uh, as, as God teaches through his word. And I think it's an adjustment, as I was saying, to, to our understanding of God. Watching him deal so graciously with Moses, perhaps we presume on God and his graciousness, and yet this passage reinforces that graciousness, but also teaches us that God is holy. And so the, the point this teaches us is that we are to trust and obey God, who is both amazingly gracious and, thank you, terrifyingly awesome. He's amazingly gracious and terrifyingly awesome. He's both these things. Um, awesome in the sense, the old sense of the word, awesome, that he's glorious and both um, both inviting and intimidating in, in his greatness. So let's take time just to go through the passage and learn about this. I'll take this off. And 
do it the old-fashioned way with a microphone. Um, and let's dig in. First, God's mercy. Um, it starts out with speaking of Moses, and, and Moses goes back to his father-in-law to ask permission to go, and then he takes his family, and he, he puts uh, them on a donkey, and he heads down to Egypt. So Moses is responding. This is a good thing here. Um, he's responding to God. God has called him, and remember, he struggled, and he had all these doubts, and God answered all those doubts. And in this passage, we see the transition. Moses goes back to Jethro, and he starts heading to Egypt. So it's a really good thing what, what's going on. Moses is following through. He's responding to God. He's no longer letting fear, um, fear of others, fear of circumstances, fear of his own inability to define him. He's letting God's call and God's sufficiency define him, at least in part. But it's also important to note some details as we go through the passage. He goes back to Jethro after this amazing encounter with God, right? Burning bush. He sees the glory of God. God reveals his sufficiency in all these ways. He goes back to Jethro, and what does he tell Jethro? Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. Now, of course, Jethro is his father-in-law and the patriarch, and so this is part of just being respectful if you're going to leave, particularly in that day when travel was such a big deal, you might never come back. That's all going on. But, but what's the content of what he says to Jethro? Does he say, Jethro... I know it sounds kind of crazy, but God met me in the wilderness when I was out on that last time taking care of the sheep. And he called me. Remember, remember the, some of those things I told you about? He called me. And this is what he said. He doesn't say that. He comes up with another motivation for going to Egypt for Jethro. Isn't that interesting? I, I think that's noteworthy. And so I think in Moses' life, part of what's going on is, is there's still a, a fear of man that's there. His obedience isn't perfect obedience. So he is going, but he's still, he's not fully trusting God. He's not fully stepping into what God's called him to do. And we see that in his reply to Jethro. Well, Jethro, I need to go back to Egypt. Um, just want to see some of my family, see if they're doing okay. That's what he says. Now, not to say he was lying, but it's close. Um, it, it's really not what's going on in the storyline. That should stand out to us. There's something going on here. should be a little bit suspicious to us. But it's still obedience. He's still doing it. He's going to Egypt, even though it's not perfect obedience. And, and it's just, I think, important to understand that often God's people, and maybe actually always, when we respond, our obedience is not perfect obedience. It's imperfect obedience. And here's God's um, leader, Moses himself, demonstrating that. And yet God is merciful in this. He's patient with Mo Moses. Moses has a struggle with this, and this is something God's helping him overcome, um, but there's, there's mercy in it, but it's imperfect obedience, and I think this informs us. It helps us not only understand God's dealings and who, what he's like, because this is ultimately about the fact that God is merciful, because Moses, uh, God could have said, Moses, that's it. You just lied to Jethro. That really isn't what's going on. You're done. We're on to the next guy. Uh, he's patient. He's merciful, just like he was in all the other dialogue that went on previously. Um, and God is kind in this passage as well to tell him, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. If Pharaoh's not around and all those others who wanted to get you because of what you did, they're dead. They're gone. So he takes his wife and his sons, has them on a donkey. He goes back to the land of Egypt and he takes his, the staff of God in his hand. Um, so Moses is going back. His obedience is happening. It's imperfect. But God is there reassuring him and he has the staff. This staff represents God's authority. 
And a staff, by the way, in ancient, the ancient Near East was not like just a random walking stick. Like we go on hikes, I like to kind of grab a, a walking stick and just use it on the hike and then throw it away when I'm done. Well, a staff is, is, it is a walking stick, but it's much more, you actually would have it for life, particularly as a shepherd. That would be your, your staff. So you'd use it, yeah, walking, but it also, they'd carve it, it would be personalized, it would identify you. So if someone found it, they would be like, oh, this is, you know, this staff belongs to Pastor Jeff. I, I recognize it. So it was a particular thing that you'd carry for life. And also you'd use it as a weapon, right? So it was your walking stick, your weapon, and you'd use it herding sheep. So it, it had all this function. So that was a normal uh, use of a staff, but now God had called Moses to represent him, and this staff now represented the authority that God had given him. Um, because his staff, remember, he could throw it down, it would become a serpent, and then pick it up by the tail, and become a staff again, just like the serpent that was on the crown of Pharaoh. So in a sense, God is saying, I am Lord over Pharaoh, and the, my lordship over Pharaoh through you is represented by his staff. And so it's not without purpose, it says he took his staff, the staff of God in his hand as he went. And so see in those verses the mix here of God's provision, God's care, God's call, God's kindness and mercy, and Moses' imperfect obedience. And I think that's a picture of all of us. All of us, as we respond to God's word, our obedience will never be perfect until we go to be with the Lord. There's going to be weaknesses, there's going to be blind spots, and there's that category of our humanity that, that needs to be understood and appreciated, that category of weakness, and then the sorts of sins that we're just not fully aware of. They're not high-handed. We'll get to that in a little bit. They're not high-handed sins that we're fully aware of. We're saying, I don't care. I know this is wrong. I'm doing it anyhow. That's a high-handed sin. There's a category of weaknesses and unknown sins. We ask the Lord to search our hearts, reveal these things to us, help us to see and to change, but he's patient in dealing with us, just as he is with Moses here. That's such an important point to understand, um, to understand that's who we are, and that's part of how God is. God is patient and gracious and merciful. And the reality is he uses us even in that imperfect obedience. Thank God, because none of us would be here without that. I know so many stories of people coming to faith in Christ, hearing the good news through somebody, and then understanding that this is not just an idea, this is actually God's truth. God calls me to believe and receive that Christ died for my sins and rose again to give me new life. And I know so many people who have heard that good news through somebody that actually had a lot of other goofy ideas and idiosyncrasies about them. I've heard the stories. I can tell you my own conversion and how I came to Christ and the, who God used in that. And that's how it is often. Um, we, are, we are full of goofiness at, goofiness at times and idiosyncrasies, and yet God still uses us. And that's here in, in Exodus and elsewhere in Scripture. I think we just have to face that reality. And it's easy to say, well, yeah, you know, that guy's goofy, and that person has an idiosyncrasy, but you know what? You do too. Um, and you just might not see it, but you do. And if the Lord were to reveal your hidden weaknesses and hidden sins, you would realize, wow, I'm no better. I'm no better than Moses um, at all. I'm worse than Moses as I look at my own life. Um, but this... These verses and this truth helps us. First, it helps us understand just God's mercy, right? God is merciful. And we should just be amazed. You're so patient with me. I know there's so many things there. You're not revealing them all at once. He could. He could say, hey, let's, let me show you all the stuff. It would be overwhelmed. But he's patient. He's gracious. Um, 
he, he bears with us in our weakness. He's there for us. He puts us around others to kind of complement our weaknesses and to use our strengths. He put us, puts us, calls us to community. He puts us in community, then we're to live it out by becoming part of a local church. So we are together, one in Christ spiritually, but we're to live it out locally. So he puts you around others to help you. It's all part of his mercy. And then he calls you to treat others as he treats you. In other words, we don't sit there critical about everybody and all their weaknesses and all their idiosyncrasies. We cover them with the same mercy God covers us with. We're patient. We bear with weaknesses. We may be aware of sins that are hidden to the person, but we're, we're, we're patient with those. We don't have our list. Here are 20 things that are wrong with you, and, 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 and we've got to work through these things systematically. No, we're patient. And maybe we even bear our whole lives those sorts of weaknesses and sins in others. We want them to grow. We don't, we don't become passive, but we're to have that attitude of mercy that we see exemplified by God in the life of Moses. So that's the first point. Second point. Second point to myself is the clock in the back is not working. So there we go. Um, actually, pardon me. I just need to put a clock on, and you will appreciate the pause. Second point, God rules. So as we follow along, uh, it, the Lord said to Moses, go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. And then it says this, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Wow. God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will not let the people go. Wait a second. I thought this was all about letting the people go. What's going on? And I thought that Pharaoh was the bad guy, but it says here that God is the one hardening his heart. What's going on? I don't get it. I don't like it. I'm confused. What's being said here? Well, there's some really important things in this passage, and this, is, this idea is seen throughout Exodus, that God is entirely sovereign over all things, even people's bad attitudes, even people's sinful hardness of heart. And it's hard for us as Westerners, we don't like this because we have this value of, of self-autonomy, of autonomy. That other, wor other words, we get to make our own choices. We are, we are our own law, autonomy. We're our own law. We get to choose, and our decisions determine our destiny. Nobody else. That's our attitude. That's our understanding. We value individual choice. We value personal justice. And so this idea of that God can come in and cause us to do things like hardening a heart flies in the face of these values we hold so dear. But Scripture doesn't pull punches on this. So let's take some time to kind of dig into the truth here and, and let it affect us. I think first we've got to understand that there are um, the context here is a cosmic battle of sorts. This is not... God versus Pharaoh is some sort of individual tiff, you know, that God and Pharaoh disagree and they're in a conflict and now God's going to be mean to Pharaoh by making him do certain things, whatever. Uh, that's not what's going on here. It's, it's a big level conflict. This is Pharaoh who represents the might and power and arrogance of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at the time. It's a great nation and it's a nation that, that follows their gods, their pantheon of gods, who, and they claim sovereignty over all their land and beyond. Pharaoh himself is understood as the son of Ra, 
the chief God, the sun God. He is the son of God on earth. He is God incarnate on earth. That's who Pharaoh is. That's how they understand him to be. Of course, he's not. But that's how he understands himself, and they all understand him that way. Pharaoh represents Egypt and all of its gods. And, of course, we know in the storyline behind that is Egypt's oppression of the people of God. Right? Genocide. Right? Remember killing of the babies? Oppression. Slavery. Slavery that is so brutal that it's meant to reduce the population. It isn't just servitude and labor. It's actually death and disease. This is Egypt imposing in their arrogance their will on God and his people. And so this is a cosmic level battle between God and all that Pharaoh represents. That's important to understand. This is a major thing. This is like, you know, this is Churchill versus Hitler, but it's even more than that. God versus Pharaoh. So it isn't an interpersonal thing. It's, it's cosmic level. That's important to get in the context. Secondly, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not outside of Pharaoh's real choice to harden his own heart. Scripture never paints it that way. The sovereignty of God is absolute over all things, including your thoughts right now. The thought you just had, he was sovereign over that. He was in control of that. He allowed you to have it. There's all mysteries we don't understand and all that, but he, it was no accident in his sovereignty. Of course, the big things in life, that's very clear on. So that's true, but also in parallel in Scripture, your choices are real. They're never diminished. And so we can see in this section of Scripture, if we read through Exodus, that at times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and at other times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So in Exodus 8.32, we can put these verses up. It says, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Exodus chapter 9, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So he hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart. They go in parallel. The sovereignty of God and the choices of people go in parallel. Now, you may not understand that. I don't. I don't imagine you do. But that doesn't mean it's not true. It's presented in Scripture, and we're talking God here, right? We're not talking you or me. This is God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. Every single thing in our lives, he's Lord over, he sustains, he can, he can handle the confusion that we might have in allowing them both to be true. That's important to, to understand that they go in parallel, uh, the two together. Um, we, we rebel against the sovereignty part, though, we like to be a law unto ourselves, um, but we are made by God. We exist by him. We continue to exist by him. Every beat of your heart, every breath of your lungs, every subatomic particle in your body, every amazing cell and its function, every movement of your soul depends on God's constant supply. You could not exist for a moment without his sovereign reign and rule over your life. We have no ground to say, God, I get to make the decisions. If you want it that way, you would immediately perish because you can't decide to keep yourself alive. You can't decide to make all the laws that God has created to continue to function. You can't make your heartbeat or your breath work. So if you, do you really want to be the one that's sovereign over your life? I don't think so. God alone is sovereign. God alone is in charge. And God alone has the prerogative to make his sovereign choices. They're always going to be just. They're always going to be right. Um, who are we ultimately? Scripture says, who are we to talk back to God? That's what it comes down to. 
So Paul actually addresses this in Romans chapter 9 because it's an issue that people struggle with. He actually has a whole section in 9 through 11 about God's sovereignty, but in a subsection he addresses this very issue of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So chapter 9 of Romans, verse 17, if we could put that up, you're up, good. Uh, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And here's the answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? That's the answer. Who are you to talk back to God? Now, there are other answers that we can get at that help us understand sovereignty. But the ultimate answer is, you ain't God. He is And he gets to make these decisions because he's God, and you're not, and you'll never be. And it's ridiculous to think that we are somehow captains of our own destiny and in charge of all things. Our choices are real, so we're not going to throw that out, right? They're real, and we're culpable for those choices. And God uses those choices to accomplish his sovereign will. But he's still sovereign. He's still in charge, and he gets to determine what happens ultimately because he is the creator and sustainer of all. And so in the life of Pharaoh, we see Romans 9, what's happening is God is working through this king over Egypt to accomplish his purposes, to demonstrate his lordship, to rescue his people, to battle against the, the cosmology, the, 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 the falsehood, the, the pantheon of gods over Egypt, and bring it down and tear it down and say, I am Lord, and these are my people. Don't touch them. Let them go. We'll get to that. Because God's motivation for his sovereignty isn't like, I just like to be in control. No, God is good. And so he uses his sovereignty to only do one thing, that which is best and most glorious. And though there's mystery in that, and there's times when I'm like, what are you doing, Lord? I don't get how this is ever going to be good. We trust him, and we trust that he's going to work it out in the end. He's demonstrated that he knows how to do that, right? He knows how to take something terrible and turn it for good. We've seen it perhaps in our own lives, but most importantly, we've seen it in the life of Jesus. The most terrible thing that has ever happened and will ever happen is that God in the flesh got put to death, died on a cross, a shameful cross, bearing sins, naked and, and shamed in front of everybody. That's a, the most terrible thing. But in that place, he bore our sins, he paid for our sins, and he rose again victorious over sin and death. So God worked the greatest good out of the greatest tragedy. So if he did it through Christ for us, then certainly he can take care of all the other things. So his character must be understood in all this. To know that he's good, to know that he's wise, to know that he's loving. His love is deeper than anything we'll ever understand. His wisdom is incomprehensible. His justice is perfect. He never does anything outside of justice. He can only be just. He, he is God of such love. He has loved his people from eternity past. At the same level, he loves his own son. He loves us. There's no deeper love. You'll spend eternity, if you've run to him in his love, you'll spend eternity contemplating the depth and wonder and glory of his love and his wisdom and his justice and his goodness. And nobody will have any excuse at the end to say, well, God, you weren't good enough to me. You weren't kind enough to me. You weren't just in my life. No one will be able to say that. No one will be able to question God. And so we, we trust him, and we do what Psalm 46.10 tells us, right? 
That, that psalm is about all this tumult going on in life and all these things happening, these terrible, terrible things. And what's the response? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I will take care of this. I will rule. I will have my way. Be still and know that I am God and you are not. Cease striving is another way it's phrased. Be still, cease striving. Stop being so anxious and know that I am God, not you. And rest in that because I'm going to work this whole thing out. I am going to be lifted up, and I will bring my reign and rule. I will bring justice. I will bring goodness. I will bring healing. I will bring answers. I will bring fruitfulness out of all these things in the long run. So trust me. Cease striving and know that I am God. Well, connected with this, of course, is the next verse and following. He tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God is orchestrating all these things because he loves his people. He calls Israel his firstborn son. We don't tend to use that term. Um, it doesn't just mean your oldest son. The firstborn son means the, the preeminent son. It's the son who inherited the father's estate. It's the son who was most favored in the family in the, in the ancient Near East. And that's the idea, that this is the, the prince, the royal prince, who's going to take over the reign of the king, and he has my favor. And so God is saying, Israel is my firstborn son. It's really provocative, actually, what he's saying in many ways. First off, who is known as God's firstborn son in Egypt? Pharaoh. Pharaoh is God's firstborn son, their God, Ra, the chief God. He is the son of Ra. That's how they understood it. He was God in the flesh there. And there was only one guy in Egypt who could say, I'm the firstborn son of Ra. And yet God says, Israel is my firstborn son. This whole nation no matter how noble or common they might be, all of them together are my firstborn son. They are the ones who I have favored. They are the ones who are preeminent in my mind. All of Israel. You think you're the firstborn son, but Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse, I will kill your firstborn son, who is to be the next God in their midst when he takes over the reign. So, so God is saying all these things about Israel, that they are this firstborn son in this way. They are favored in this way. They are beloved in this way. And, and, and it's a wonderful thing to see that he does that with all the people of God. By the way, Genesis was written by Moses for the people of God as they came out of Egypt. And, and the identity of mankind is chiefly around this phrase that we are made in the image of God. That's if you want to understand anthropology at its core, we are the image of God on the earth. And back in those days, there were only certain people who were considered the image of the gods. And again, they were the kings. The kings were understood as the image of God. They were to reflect their deity on the earth. 
And yet God says to male and female, men and women, and all of his people, ultimately all humanity, this is true, and especially for his people as they come and return to him and live in him, they are the image of God. So we're all that together. Um, the Bible actually has an amazingly powerful effect in, our, in leveling humanity and for good, uh, bringing us all together, realizing we're all equal before God, no matter what our socioeconomic status may be, whether we have nobility in our genes or not, we're all before him and in him, we are all sons and daughters. His great love, he loves us with this love, this great love. Now, now, of course, we understand the ultimate fulfillment of this, what he's saying about Israel, is fulfilled in the true Israel in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate firstborn son. He is the, the preeminent son of the Father, the eternal son of the Father, God the Son, the eternal son of the Father. There's always been Father and Son and Holy Spirit, always. Jesus has always been the Son coming from the Father. He is the firstborn son, and then he took on flesh, became a man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and then lived as the perfect Israel, became the true Israel, the true firstborn son, fulfilled all righteousness, died for sins, rose again, and he is the preeminent one that deserves to be treated as a firstborn son who has received the full inheritance to reign and rule over the whole universe, to do what Adam and Eve failed to do, to bring about this reign over all things, to image God, and he will come back and fulfill that. He's already started that, of course, in his death and resurrection, his ascension, his current reign. And then the good news is, do you want to be a firstborn son or daughter? I do. Here's, here's what you're called to do. It's very simple. Turn away from self-reliance and sin and look to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And through simple faith, we are added into the family and we are counted as sons and daughters. And all that that he's earned is now ours. And so he can use all things for good in his reign for our lives. And then when he returns, we'll be there with him in the renewed earth. As sure as he rose from the dead, this will happen. And he sends the Spirit to us now. It says in Galatians 4, it says, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Brother or sister, if you are a believer, the Spirit of God has been sent into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's a, a, a work of the Holy Spirit in us where we recognize God the Father is our Father, and we truly are his son or daughter. We are safe. We are included in him. We belong to him. And as we sang, since you, so, no, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Such we are in Christ. And so God is saying this about his people, his Old Testament people, who through faith are as well part of the family. And here with it, the, the strength of God's statement, let my son go. In other words, this is the mama bear getting upset. You're messing with my kids. You're messing with my son. You're messing with my people. Let my son go. And just as a mama bear, you don't mess with a mama bear with her cubs. Um, I don't know if you've ever been around bear cubs. Um, it's a scary thing to be around bear cubs. And you know, up in New Hampshire, I've, I've been around them a couple times, black bear cubs. Um, it's scary, not because the cubs are scary, but because mama's near somewhere. And if you go near those cubs, you better fear for your life. So whenever I have seen cubs, I'm like, hightail it out of there as fast as I can. Because a mama bear is going to protect those cubs. Such is God's zeal for his children here. He's saying to Pharaoh, you false son of God, let my son go. You better know what's coming. 
That's the idea here. And God says, if you don't, I'm going to take your firstborn son. I mean business. He's a holy God. He's a mighty God. And his love and zeal for his children, he comes against those who would mess with them. Now, it's important side point to understand in the Old Testament, the people of God were the nation of Israel. The enemies of God were other human nations and rulers. And so God, of course, deals with those who oppose his people in this way. We're seeing here the New Testament. Now, Israel is spiritual Israel. All those who believe in the gospel, Jew or Gentile. And our enemies are spiritual enemies. So the chief enemy is no longer people. We're no longer to treat people this way. Our, our, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, as it says in Ephesians 6, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So don't use this verse to curse your neighbor. Um, say, you better stop doing that and messing with my family. Um, instead, recognize our real enemies are spiritual, the hosts of the devil and his demons. And God has that same zeal for us. And so he's equipped us with the gospel, with the power of prayer, with the power of the body to do battle. When we resist the devil, he flees from us, it says. And one day God will vanquish him entirely. There'll be no more demonic influence in the world, no more sin. And so God in his same zeal will accomplish his work. And so we learn to trust him and to obey him, to walk in his ways, to, to use these means of grace to, to resist our enemies and to allow the Lord be, to be the one who brings ultimate deliverance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will, I will avenge. I will, I will see to the final solution. We trust in him, and we use his means to do battle, and we know that behind this is his great love for us. Finally, God's holiness. Verses 24 through 26. As you look at these verses, you might be like, these are a little odd. And they are. They're a little challenging. Um, it's about circumcision. And it says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Speaking of Moses, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And you might be thinking, what is going on there? Um, it's certainly foreign to us in many ways, if, if we don't understand the, the culture and the, and the background here. And this is not a, an accidental section, right? God is a genius in his authorship of scripture, so everything that's there is there for a reason. Moses wrote Exodus to the people of God as they had come out of Egypt, and so there's purpose here. Because he could have just moved on, right? Burning bush, and now we're just going to be down. The next scene will be down in Egypt talking to Pharaoh, and that's coming next. But there, we're in this transition that has all these points. And one of the points is this story that actually happened. And it has to do with Moses failing to circumcise his, one of his sons, and most likely, of course, his younger son, who was probably born around the time of God's call to him. Eliezer is his name. He had two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. And... Uh, Moses has failed to circumcise Eliezer for some reason. We don't know for sure. And, and we have Zippor coming on the scene, another heroine, by the way, multiple woman heroes in Exodus so far. Um, it seems like the, the men struggle, the women are, are faithful in so many ways. Um, anyhow, so she comes in and she kind of rescues what's going on. We don't know what happened to Moses because it may be the, the threat on him was that he was actually paralyzed and so forth. Um, but but Zipporah comes in and addresses the issue. So the issue has to do with him not circumcising his son. Um, background here, 
to circumcision. Circumcision is an outward sign of God's work and covenant through Abraham. So the covenant with Abraham was made as a covenant of grace. It's entirely one-sided. God said, um, believe me, and I'll count it to you as righteousness. And Abraham believes him, and God does that, of course. Um, but God makes a covenant. He makes a promise. There's, there's really no conditions, no, no previous conditions needed, just simply faith. But that doesn't mean there aren't conditions that follow in this covenant, just like in our covenant through Christ. There's a, a call of God. And so there's a sign of that covenant that, that all of the descendants of Abraham are to practice, and that is the circumcision of, of the males by their eighth day. They're to be circumcised. So if we look in Genesis 17, we, we see that. The call is very clear. And then at the end of that passage, uh, 17, 14 says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so this wonderful covenant of grace that they're given is to be signified by the males who are descended from Abraham and really any of those who want to enter into the covenant of Abraham uh, in its form at that point. Um, it's signified by circumcision. There are signs of all the covenants, by the way. Um, what is the sign of the new covenant? Does anyone know? How do, we, how do we signify that we're in the new covenant? Baptism, communion, right? Those are, those are how we do it. So baptism is the sign. I've been baptized. I belong to him. And then we walk that out in communion as well as an ongoing sacrament and sign of our new covenant relationship with the Lord. The Lord, by the way, is, gives signs uh, he doesn't call us just to simply have an internal faith, though that is important. We're to walk it out, we're to signify it, and these things are important. So anyhow, that's the background here. Moses has failed to circumcise his son. So he, so he has broken the covenant through Abraham. And so let's think about that. It's a crystal clear requirement. Moses would have known it. And Moses has been talking with God himself, right? He's been there at the burning bush. God has revealed himself to Moses. He's been hearing from God. He's called to be God's representative and to walk in God's authority. He's called to represent the people of God going down to Egypt. And yet he has this terrible blind spot that isn't a blind spot, that he didn't circumcise his son. And this is here because it happened, but it's here because it, it communicates to us something about God. We've seen all this stuff about God's grace and patience with Moses' weaknesses and his unknown sins, but this is not an unknown sin. This is a high-handed sin because it was clear what he was called to do, and it was clear that he hadn't done it. And it was, it was in the face of God himself, disrespectful. We don't know why. I, I have some thoughts in line from what we're reading. I think it was, was Moses' life-defining fear of man issue that drove him to the point where it was beyond weakness and hidden. It was a high-handed sin that he didn't want to do this. I think he had fear of man. I, I think we can see it. Uh, Zippor's reply to him, you are a bridegroom of blood, it's not like a positive reply. It's kind of like, wow, being married to you means that we got to deal with this sort of stuff. Um, and so it's likely that, that Jethro and his family did not practice this. And Moses perhaps had their first son circumcised, and there was a big uh, hubbubaloo in the family, right? And like, oh, you know, what, what are you doing? Let's not do that ever again. And Moses, I think, gave in. And fear of man, rather than leadership, led him to sin against God in this blatant way. 
And for Moses, because of the level of revelation that he had, this was wrong and, and would have meant cut off for any, father, or any descendant of Abraham, but Moses especially, it was no longer just a, a serious crime. It was a capital crime. And so God comes to, to bring justice to bear, but it's interesting that Moses doesn't get killed, right? Because God knew it would work out. But God comes to him in justice to kill him. He's probably paralyzed or something. Zipporah realizes what's going on, what's needed. She does the circumcision, and, and then it averts God's anger. Um, so for Moses, I, I think the best understanding is the fear of man drove him to sin in a high-handed way. So we have to understand with that, there are categories of sins. There are hidden sins, unknown sins, weaknesses, and then there are high-handed sins, and they can all be motivated by the same propensity in us. It's a matter of how far we take it, and do we let it rule our lives. And for Moses, fear, apparently fear of man ruled his life to the point of disobedience to God, and, and he was choosing to be afraid of perhaps Jethro or his wife more than being afraid of God. Fear of man is a terrible master. It will cause you to do things you never thought you would. It will cause you to fail to do things that you always thought you should. I look back on my life, and, and so many of my serious sins in my life were motiva- motivated by fear of man. And I'm not saying don't be respectful of others, right? That's, that's arrogance and ignorance. But to let the fear of men, men and women, rule you will lead you to dangerous places. When I was a teen, I was, uh, got into a lot of trouble. I almost was killed in some of the things I did probably almost killed others, did some terrible sins and brought my, dragged my parents through all sorts of trouble. And as I look back on it, all the decisions, all the particulars were driven by the fear of man. I was trying to impress my friends. That's part of my conversion, actually. I started to realize it. God opened my eyes up like, I was like, you idiot, speaking to myself. You've been doing all this stuff simply to make your friends laugh or impress your friends. What a fool. And Moses is a fool here. If it, this is what's going on. I mean, he, we know he's a fool in his sin and likely the fear of man. So there's a lesson here in it just for us to be aware, to not let sin dominate our lives. When we know and it's there and it's, we're aware this is sin, to take it soberly because God is not a pushover. He is patient with us in our weakness, right? Our, our hidden things, he understands. But when we're aware and we say, I don't care, I'm doing it anyhow, that's another category. And God will not sit by and let you do that. He will bring consequences to bear. Now, in Moses' life, of course, it's very serious. It means death. Unlikely that he's going to bring death, but there are sins that do lead to death. And I do know stories of apparent judgment that led to death by God to, for his people. But he can bring other things to bear as well. So we need to be, have a sober fear of God as well as an understanding of his amazing grace. He is both amazingly gracious and terrifyingly awesome. And we should have a fear of God and not mess around with stuff, particularly when we know better, when it's obvious. Now, that doesn't mean pick yourself up by your bootstraps and change, because sometimes you're aware of it, and it's so hard. But get help, because if you get help, you're going to find help, and God will, will have a different disposition. He wants you to find help. But if you are defiant and self-reliant and rebellious and continue in that, he will bring consequences. That's what's going on here. In the Chronicles of Narnia, um, Aslan represents God, particularly Christ, the second person of the Trinity in the flesh, 
represents him in the story. And there's this interesting interchange early on while the, while the, the uh, Pevensies are kind of getting used to this world. They talk to the beavers, and they're talking to Mr. Beaver about Aslan. And, and Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, is he quite safe? I should rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is who our God is. He's good. He's not safe. He's not a pushover. He's gracious. He's patient. He's amazingly kind. But he also is a diligent father and king over us. This whole section is given to us so we would understand who God is, what he's like. That we would understand these truths, that they go together. He's amazingly gracious and terrifyingly awesome. We've gone through and we've seen these things. We see God as amazingly gracious in receiving Moses' and perfect obedience. We see God as amazingly gracious in counting the children of Israel as his firstborn sons and daughters. But we also see him as terrifyingly awesome in his sovereignty over all things for the sake of his people. We see him as terrifyingly awesome in his holy and severe response to Moses' high-handed sin. We must know God as he is, both amazingly gracious and terrifyingly awesome. Let's take a minute now and maybe think about for your own life how to apply this. Maybe for you, it's the amazingly gracious point you need to work on, understanding that he's patient with you. Maybe there's some people you have not been patient with them, aware of their weaknesses and sins more than your own, and not like God in that. Maybe you just need to say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to change. Maybe it's on the other side. You are treating God like he's a pushover, thinking that you can get away with stuff. And my warning to you is turn while you can. Come to him while you can. He's there. He loves you. He wants to give you the help you need, but you need to decide not to let it rule you anymore. So maybe right now you just need to come and bring that to the Lord. But let's take a minute to do that. Uh, and then um, after that, if a band could come up and we'll transition, just Pastor Jeff will transition us to communion.